you just to stand right up. Stand up if you don't have a Bible. Just do it. All right? And if you don't have a Bible, after you're standing, I'm seeing no one standing. Thank you, Sam, for standing. And uh, there's Bibles on the back for loan, and you can grab one of those so you can follow along with us. And over the next several weeks, uh, we want you to uh, break, bring a Bible, of course, but if you don't have one, you can grab one there and uh, borrow that for the day, and that'll be good. Now, Revelation means apocalypse, but what many people realize or uh, don't realize is that in the book of Revelation, there are actually three genres within the book of Revelation. There is apocalyptic writing, prophetic writing, and then also uh, an epistle. Basically, the book is an epistle, a letter to the churches. The letters to the churches, and in these letters, they're actually written through uh, the Apostle John to the churches, uh, Jesus writing to the churches. And so they're in red letters, and we'll kind of explore that and why that is. Jesus writing to these churches, are, there's some important, pertinent information that we can glean and that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. But, but as we start this series, I want to address a pet peeve of mine, all right? Um, how many have ever, uh, well, you don't have to raise your hand. Many people, when they talk about the book of Revelation, they say the book of Revelations. <laughs> and let me just say, in, in Bible college, when I was at a, in a New Testament, Testament theology class, they drilled it into us, never say revelations, but say revelation. It's not that exciting, but they, thank you. <laughs> and so help me, if I say revelations, just you know, stand up and walk out, right? I have worked hard. I'm not going to do that. But it is, it's interesting, the book of Revelation, everyone say revelation, not Revelations, is a perplexing book. And how many would agree with me that it's kind of perplexing? To some people, it's an exciting book. They love to read it and get into it, the 22 chapters, the 404 verses that are in Revelation. But to others, it's kind of troubling. In fact, one, of, one theologian, uh, his name is William Barclay, he says this. He says, no one can shut his eyes to the difficulty of the revelation. It is the most difficult book in the Bible, but it is in, infin, infinitely, I can read, worth studying. And it is worth studying. And I'll tell you, this is the first time in my pastoral career that I've actually been in the book of Revelation for any uh, length of time. And it's exciting as I've been studying and asking God for revelation. It's been really really interesting. I've read through the book of Revelation again, and I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing over the next seven, seven weeks. Your assignment, along with your normal Bible reading, is to get in the, the 22 chapters. Maybe you take one a day for 22 days, however you want to do it. Over seven weeks, we want you to read it. Now, what you're going to read is a book that is full of images, strange creatures, mysterious symbolism, warnings, uh, portrayals of terrible times of judgment. There was epic battles described. Uh, it almost, it's like it takes you to another world. But it's different than something you would read like the Lord of the Rings or a Harry Potter. Uh, for, um, those, are, those are different. Those are science fiction type books. There's nothing science or fiction. These are very real uh, stories and happenings in the book of Revelation. But I'll tell you, 
I've, uh, I've avoided this book. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know if you can relate to that. I've read through this several times, the book of Revelation, and, uh, and, it's, you know, and I kind of just you know, kind of skimmed through, and I'm like, Lord, just help me get through the end of the book. It's at the end of a Bible reading program or something like that. And it's like, just, you know, just get it off so I can check it off. There have been times I've read to like chapter 5, and I just give up. I say, this is just way too strange. Does anyone relate to me? Uh, you know, you reading? I know probably not, but that's okay. It's true confessions for your, from your pastor this morning. We're not going to study the whole book of Revelation, but we are going to encourage you to read it and with the goal of understanding the essence of what's happening. And I want to say something about Wednesday nights. We are tailoring Wednesday nights for the next seven weeks uh, all around the book of Revelation and around these seven letters that we're going to study on Sunday mornings. And so the pattern is going to be, like this morning, we're going to look at one of the letters, and then on Wednesday, we are going to take a deeper look into the issues that are described there. How many know, you know, Sunday morning, it's kind of one-way communication. You guys get to hear from me, maybe an occasional amen from, you know, someone uh, or, or not. But uh, I'll tell you, most of the time, it's me talking or maybe someone talking in the back, I see. <laughs> but that's okay. And, uh, and it's one-way communication. But on these Wednesday nights, we're going to start with some worship, which will be kind of neat, a nice piece. Uh, we'll worship the Lord together for a few moments. And then we're going to dive into these scriptures around round tables. We're going to discuss these things. And I just want to encourage you, if you've not been out on Wednesday nights, make it a priority. The next seven weeks, say, you know what, I'm going to do something different. Or I'm going to come out and I'm going to participate and I'm going to grow in my knowledge of revelation. I'm going to grow in my knowledge in Christ and, ju and just let it be a blessing to you. And so um, that's the commercial. And you can also, of course, we already mentioned those little cards for Sunday mornings. We encourage you to be inviting people out for those things, okay? I ran across a list of reasons why we should study Revelation, and I want to start with these. If you're taking notes, you can jot them down. Uh, I thought these were worth discussing this morning. The first reason to study Revelation is because it's the last book of our Bible, the final chapters. And like any good book, you need to read the entire thing. Amen? The second reason is because it's the only prophetic book in the New Testament. The Old Testament has 17 books that have prophecy intertwined. And I didn't count these, but I understand there's 2,500 or more prophecies within all of Scripture. 2,000 of those have been fulfilled so that means about 500 are still remaining. Many of those are found in the book of Revelation. And we understand that if over 2,000 prophecies have been fulfilled, that these final prophecies are going to be fulfilled as well. Do you believe that? I sure do. And so it's the only prophetic book. The third reason is that because it describes the second coming of Jesus and the events leading up to it. How many want to know that Jesus is coming back? Yes, and that we want to know what are some of the things, what are some of the signs that we can be looking for in anticipation for that. Number four, it describes how Satan will be finally and forever defeated. Amen? And that's kind of exciting. Number five, the message of Revelation is relevant to us, for us. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm going to get something out of this. All right? And because you will, in your hearts, if your hearts are open, you will certainly get something out of it. Number six, 
God promises a blessing if we study, if we read, if we hear, and if we take to heart what is in Revelation. I did not realize this. I had never put this together until I started studying and reading some commentary. Look, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1 real quick. Revelation 1, verse 3 said, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written in it because the time is near. Right at the beginning of Revelation, it says you're going to be blessed if you not only read this, you hear it, but you take it to heart. But then at the very end of Revelation, Revelation 22, flip there with me, we hear the same promise at the beginning and at the end of Revelation. It says in uh, 22.7, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. Again, this is in red letters here. It says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of, these, of this prophecy in this book. You are going to be blessed by studying this with us over the next seven weeks. And there are friends and family members of yours that will be blessed if we can get them to come and to participate in what we're doing, not only on Sunday mornings, but on Wednesday nights, that as we dive into this, there is a blessing waiting for you. And so I want to encourage you, clear your calendar the next three Wednesday nights, the next six Sundays, and uh, we will uh, enjoy that blessing together. And then the last reason that we should study Revelation is because the theme of Revelation is Jesus. It's an unveiling of Jesus, who is truth. We see Jesus' authority, his majesty. It's a fulfillment of what he promised. And it's a powerful book. And yes, it can be intimidating, but we know that there's blessing in it. And so let's get through this together. Let's read the words together and let's look for the essence, the truth of what God wants to communicate. Who's with me over these next seven weeks? I hope and pray that every single one of you will be. I want to give you some background about the book of Revelation. First, we know that the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John, the same one that wrote John, the gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was one of the 12 disciples, and, uh, and it was written about uh, between 90 and 95 A.D., and so if you don't, uh, if you can just imagine a timeline, we know that Jesus was born at zero, right, A.D.? I think there's a zero, or maybe one, I'm not sure, actually. But then you fast forward 33 years, and Jesus died, and now we're looking about 60 years after Jesus was gone and in, in heaven is when this book was written, or about 30 years after Paul. It was written on the Isle of Patmos. Now, if any of you are world travelers or have any desire to go to Israel and to kind of go to the Holy Lands and things like that, the Isle of Patmos today, has anyone ever been there? Anyone here? No one here? Okay. Well, my parents have been there, and they're actually going again in a couple weeks or something, and my grandparents are leaving in a couple weeks as well, and so I've got some family going. The Isle of Patmos is gorgeous. It's a vacation destination today, um, but at the time when John wrote this, it was a place of banishment. Uh, it was four miles, a small little island stretched out, and it, it was anything but a vacation destination. It was hard. It was a brutal place to live. And uh, John had been sent there kind of as punishment because of the, the work that he was doing for Jesus' sake. And so uh, anyway, so it was written on the Isle of Patmos. 
Um, turn with me to Revelation 1, uh, 1 through 4, and we'll see uh, right from the beginning that, uh, and this is often missed, that Revelation was written as a letter, and uh, we'll see this. In um, Revelation 1, 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the, his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, right at the beginning, it's saying, look, this book is, or this letter is all about Jesus. And boy, that is uh, crystal clear. Blessed is the one, which we just read, who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart in what, it, what is written in it, because the time is near. And then it says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, these are seven churches, written to seven churches, and to the believers that are associated with that church, or with those churches. This letter would have been taken at like a courier, and it would have been read out loud to the churches. It would have been taken all over uh, the province of Asia and gone to these churches and just like a scroll, read out loud. And, and that's why we hear, like at the end we'll see today, it says, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. We see that many, many times in Revelation. These are historic churches. They're actual churches that existed. And these churches, at the point when John was writing, these churches were under John's care. And the purpose of, of uh, these, this writing was to offer hope and encouragement to a persecuted believer. What these churches were undergoing, even just a generation or two after Jesus, they were really persecuted, and, uh, and they were, it was an encouragement to them, but it also was written to convict believers living in compromise, living in the world, uh, living in a spiritual complacency. And I'll tell you, each week as we look at these letters, we're going to be able to see some parallels and, uh, in God's Word and uh, to our culture, our city, our situation here, our world, and, uh, and we will see that certainly today in the first letter. And I want you to stand with me, everyone, and uh, this will be a great time to go slide and get a Bible so no one else sees, all right? But we're going to read this together, and probably for the next seven weeks, we'll read these letters standing, just giving reverence to God's Word, just do something different. We don't normally do this. But Revelation chapter 2 starting in verse number one. Follow along with me, and if you need a Bible, you can grab one. All right, it says this. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have preserved and have or persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you first did. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this for you in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord, this letter was written to a church that was struggling, that had all kinds of uh, good things going for it, but also had an area of uh, concern. And Lord, today as we read this and look at this letter, Lord, I pray that we would be able to not only understand the original intent of this letter, but Lord, that there would be application for each and every one here. And God, I pray that you would just reveal your word to us, and we'll give you the praise, we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The first letter was written to the church in Ephesus. And it's interesting that each of these cities that we'll study, each of these churches in, in, represented by the city, have their own characteristics. In Ephesus, uh, it's almost like you could you know, say oh, Grand Rapids uh, and Detroit and Chicago, three separate cities have very different um, characteristics. Uh, or even closer to home, maybe like Grand Haven and Muskegon in Holland, that's actually a little bit closer to the proximity between these churches, and they, they had different um, characteristics. For Ephesus, it was the chief city of the province of Asia. It was right on the Aegean Sea, a beautiful place, and, uh, and it would uh, we've uh, many um, uh, um, expositors or people that study the word, they will say it was kind of the vanity fair, so to speak, of Asia. It was a hopping place. It was happening. And it was for two reasons. One is because of the commercial center. It was a commercial center for the area. Three highways kind of intersected in Ephesus. There are beautiful buildings, gift shops, markets, materialism, markets. I mean, just anything you could want and buy. Uh, and it was also filled with all kinds of people. Ephesus was kind of a, a place that people could run to and uh, survive. Uh, if they were running from their own life, they could go there and find work, find employment, and they would. Uh, and so, it's certainly a commercial center. The second thing, though, is that it was a religious center for the area as well. Uh, a powerful church was established in Ephesus. In fact, it was Paul's most successful ministry journey. It was part of his third ministry journey that he ended up in Ephesus. And boy, after the first, second, on his third try. There was a powerful church established. And it's interesting, Paul wrote to the Ephesians as he was living in Ephesus, and he also wrote First and Second Timothy uh, from, from the city there in Ephesus. And now, when we read this, uh, John had taken the overseeing uh, duties. He was the pastor, so to speak, of the city. And I say it was the religious center. It wasn't just the Christian religious center. It also was a religious center uh, for many different religions. In fact, quite a bit of pagan worship happened in Ephesus. Um, you may have read in Acts chapter 19. Uh, we're not going to take the time to look at it. But there was a temple that was uh, constructed, the largest temple ever. And it was a temple of Artemis. And the Romans, uh, they called it the Temple of Diana. And it what's interesting is that this temple was, had original good intent, but it had been perverted uh, grossly. In fact, the grossest forms of immorality around the temple uh, and around the city all happened within the, the temple in 
very close to it, very sensual, uh, prostitution, orgies, the things like that. In fact, when it reads about referring to the Nicolaitans um, uh, in saying, I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, it, most, uh, most writers, uh, they believe that they were talking about the sensual nature of some of the things that were happening around the temple and uh, identify it in that way. So Ephesus was a powerful city, powerful, prominent ministry. In Jesus, his first letter was written to him in, these, in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. What's interesting is you look at these letters is that there's a pattern. Uh, each of them have profound, a profound message to each church, but it's almost like a review or an assessment of the church. And as you read it, we'll, uh, we'll be able to each week kind of look at, uh, we, there's a part that ha- describes the characteristic of Jesus. And then there's a compliment to the church, then a concern, then a correction, and then a commitment to the church if they heed the warning uh, put forth in the letter. And it's important for us to you look at this. And so we want to dive in and look at each of these verses and uh, ask God for revelation knowledge. And uh, so we'll look at verse 1. Let's look at that again. It says, to the angels, right, of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this is describing Jesus. He's describing himself, that Jesus holds the seven stars, which represent the seven churches that he's uh, writing these letters to in his right hand. And then it says he walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the churches or the, or the pastors that are responsible, the light, the lighthouse. In the churches, what we see here as he reads this, or as we read this, is that Jesus is intimately connected to, the, to this church and really to all seven of these churches. The churches are under his control and are under his authority. And so he describes that right off the back. He says, look, it's me. I'm the one holding the seven stars, the seven lamps. I'm walking among the seven lampstands. And he says, I know where you are. Can you just imagine being the church and getting this revelation through, through John and them pulling it out and reading it, the comfort that would have came from that? As they would have heard, he's saying, look, I hold this church in my hand, and I'm walking among you. And I love you. And uh, boy, that's really powerful. In verses 2, 3, and then 6, we kind of see the second piece. It's a compliment. Let's read those words again. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. And then in verse 6, but I have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is quite a compliment. If you're the early reader or the, uh, the one hearing this, you're saying, hey, we're doing a good job. A, pl- a pat on the back. It, it is a compliment. Our deeds, our hard work, which were described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God has created you in advance to do. We're doing the deeds. We're, we're hard workers. Our labor, our perseverance. He says you've endured hardship without growing weary. Good 
job. You cannot stand evil men. You've tested false prophets. Way to go. And those Nicolaitans, the, the sensuality, the, the orgies, the prostitution, you have denied those things. Great job, church. And the Ephesians hearing that, if they would have just stopped there, they would have said, hey, all right, kind of puffed up their chest saying, all right, we're doing a good job. We're living in the midst of all this immorality, and we're not wishy-washy. How about it? We've defended the faith. It's a badge of honor. And it's interesting. And boy, I think if Jesus was to write a letter to us, um, I think he could look at our situation uh, here at the Gateway Church, and I believe that there would be compliments. There would be things that, 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 please, that please Jesus about the things that we do the way we care for one another, the testimony this morning. You know, Jesus is pleased that there were people within our body that reached out to Wendy and to others that had been hurting. And I'll tell you, there would be things, there would be compliments. But then comes the concern in verse number four. Let's look at it together. It says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Ouch. If you were the early reader, the listener of this, and it said you have forsaken your first love, your love for God, your love for each other, this was a serious defect in the church. And it says in verse 5, if it's not corrected, you risk losing your light, your witness, your outreach. In the great city of Ephesus, many things had distracted the church from its first love. Ephesus, the church there, they followed rules. They were doing the right things and doing good things. But it's almost like that book, if you've ever heard of it or read it, The Good to Great by Jim Collins. They were doing all these good things, but neglecting the greatest thing, which is to love. What happened to the church in Ephesus? The, the church was planted about 30 years after Jesus was, was there. So the church is only 30 to 40, maybe 45 years old in Ephesus. What had happened? The church started to drift. I kind of describe it with these chairs up here. The church, when it was established had incredible devotion, were passionate about God, were passionate about each other. You read about the early church in Acts. They were willing to sell all their, their goods, and they, they were the first ones uh, to do that. Uh, they would say, look, we'll, we'll just give. We're, everything that's mine is yours. They, they fellowshiped daily. Uh, they loved God. They were passionate about uh, getting the word of God out. But then they slipped into the second chair where now they were still doing all of the things. And here they would have died for it. In fact, many people did die for their faith. Many of the apostles died for their faith. And now they've slipped over to the second chair where they're still doing the same work. They're still doing the same deeds. The activity looks the same, but they've lost the passion or the heart behind it. Now, we don't address this here in, uh, the, uh, with this church in Ephesus here, 
But there's a third way that you can slip. And not only, uh, it's almost as if these are generations, first generation Christian, a second generation kind of being born up uh, in saying, okay, we'll still do the things, we'll still go to church, we're still going to, um, we're going to still serve and do all these things, but they lost the passion here. But then there's a third chair that says, look, I've seen the generation before me. They're doing all these things, but there's nothing behind it. There's no reason. There's no passion. There's no love. They're not interested. And they don't even serve God. And I don't think that's where the Ephesians were. But, but the church was in a place of drifting, a place where they had lost their first love. It kind of, kind of can be de- uh, described this way. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses two or uh, verses 8 and 9, I want you to flip there with me. Ephesians chapter 2. It says this. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Everyone say faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works. We know that works will not save you, but it's by faith. But what had happened to the church in Ephesus is that they were saved by faith, by grace, through faith, right, here in the first, but now they were concentrating on their works, and it lost their faith, or had the risk of losing their faith. It's also like this, they were full of knowledge, but forgot their love. Go with me uh, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, it says, now about food sacrifices to idols. We know that all that that we all uh, sorry we know that we all possess knowledge knowledge puffs up but love builds up in the first generation there was love a deep love a deep commitment a passion but now they're saying well we've got the knowledge we understand that but they lost the energy behind it in the second generation a third way that we can look at it is that they were drifting that they were very intent on the rules or the activity, but had lost their relationship with Christ or were in danger of doing so. A great story that kind of uh, captured that is in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, the story of Mary and uh, Martha. It, It says this, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparation that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus says, in red letter, by the way, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The point is, is that there was a lot of rules that uh, Martha was interested in doing, making all the preparation, but Mary chose what was more important to love. And uh, the church in Ephesus struggled with that. There were lots of rules. There were lots of things being accomplished and done, but the relationship piece was missing. One more thing that just kind of, as we look at this, they were drifting. They were maybe more um, interested in apologetics, kind of proving the faith. In fact, they were even commended for that, that they they didn't allow false prophets to to reign and to, to teach. But in that process, they forgot the mission 
why they even exist was to go and to make disciples. So they could argue or they could talk about what they believed, but then they forgot the why behind it. The Ephesians in the church had drifted. And hearing this, if you could put yourself in their shoes and the scroll is ripped open, and they're saying, look, you've forsaken your first love. It would have hurt to hear that. They may have been confused. They're saying, man, we need to take a fresh look at our own lives. You know, I think about our church, and I think about us drifting. Is there a lack of passion for the lost, a lack of intimacy, a lack of interest, a lack of respect? Something uh, uh, someone said a few weeks ago when we met on a Sunday night discussing about our future, um, uh, someone kind of raised their hand and said, you know, I'm, it, it's frustrating. We can, we can get a crowd on Sunday, but Wednesday nights, uh, you know, there's you know, two or three people that show up. And uh, at that point, there had been a couple of Wednesdays where that was the case. And just that idea that, you know, have we lost why we're even here? Are you interested? The focus or the expectation was on rules and activity. Is that the case here? But then when we look deep, is, there, is our love absent? Is our devotion missing? Let me ask you a couple questions, and maybe you can personalize these. Have we lost our intense, enthusiastic devotion for Jesus as a body? Or maybe have you personally? How about this? Have you or have we been distracted by the world around us, like the church in Ephesus? Has church life become a burden, a duty? A chore. Saying, yeah, we've got to go to church. Mark that off the list of things to do instead of our passion, our interest. And I'll tell you, just like the church in Ephesus, they heard those words. I hope that these words challenge you. They challenge me. If we would say, yeah, we've lost our devotion or we've been distracted or church has become a burden or a, a chore, if that's the case, there's something wrong with our relationship with Jesus. That's just the bottom line. We've missed a portion. Is it possible that we've slipped from a first generation into that second generation where we're doing the right things, but there's no depth, there's no heart behind it? Yeah, we're busy, but have we lost our loving devotion in the midst of the activity. See, we can lose our devotion and we can lose our love in the activity. And this doesn't just happen at church. It can happen on our job. You can say, man, I used to love to go to work. I, I was passionate about my job. And uh, all of a sudden, you do the same thing over and over. How many know you can lose some of the passion behind of that? It can happen with your kids. You can say, man, I used to love my kids. <laughs> and you, you know, you're carting your kids all around, and we're kind of in that stage. And, and, and all of a sudden, it's like, okay, do I even love these kids anymore? And I'm just kidding, Reagan. But, but there's a sense, parents, you know what I'm saying. It's like, what in the world has happened? I used to be more affectionate, or I used to, you know, uh, take more time. And all of a sudden, it was, it's all about the taxi service or whatever. You know, it can happen in our marriages, too, where we used to love. We used to do things just because we loved 
And now it's just about the activity, the routine of our life. And have we lost our love, our devotion? Well, there was a correction that came uh, as well in uh, Revelation chapter 2. In verse 5, a correction or a solution. And so let's look at that. So they know that he says, uh, he says look, you've forsaken your first love. And then in verse 5, he gives the solution. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember and repent. Remember just re- reminds me of these chairs saying, boy, remember, get up out of this seat and remember what it was like. Do you remember when you gave your heart to the Lord? You remember just a few weeks ago we had someone uh, give their heart to the Lord and it's been exciting to kind of see some of those things uh, kind of just take off and there's an excitement and a joy and it's changing their family and, and God is really in control and it's exciting to see. Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember what Jesus meant to you in those early stages? I can remember when I was nine years old, November 12th, 1985, I prayed the sinner's prayer with my grandma, and I've shared this story before. But I can remember there was a relief, a joy. I didn't have to worry anymore. I knew that I knew that I was saved. Can you remember what that felt like? Do you remember what you were like before you were saved, what you've been saved from? Our memories are a marvelous thing. If you are here stuck in this category here in two or certainly in three, if you can remember and get back to the place where you first met Jesus, there's power in that. And that's what Jesus says. He says, remember the heights that you have fallen from. And then he says, repent. And he means, that word means to totally change. It means to turn around in the Greek, to return to what you used to do. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, how many have ever heard of walking through the Bible? Uh, I used to listen to that on the radio on my way to work um, when I was growing up. Um, He says this in his commentary on Revelation. He says, believe me, Christians need to repent. (laughs) And I'm reading this. I would say the same thing, but it's better if I read it, right? Listen, he says, we need to break the shell of self-sufficiency, the crust of conceit, the shield of sophistication, the veneer of vanity, get rid of the false face of piety, and stop this business of everlasting polishing our halos as if we were some great saint. How about that? And then he says in big bold, he says in his commentary, he says, we need to repent. I need to repent. You need to repent. We need to remember And we need to repent. And as we do, it shifts us from that second chair back to the first chair. If not, our lampstand, it says, will be blown out, extinguished. Our light, our influence. What that means for us as a church is that if we don't address when we get to this point where we're just all about activity and we've lost our love, that what that means is that we will lose our witness in our community. We will, this church will close its doors if we don't remember. 
And if we don't, repent. It's a wake-up call. It was a wake-up call to the church in Ephesus. And I believe it doesn't talk about their response, but I believe these believers were genuine, had a good heart, had a heart to do what was right. And my idea and what I envision in my mind is that when they heard that, that you have lost your first love, and it said to remember and to repent, my idea is that they fell on their faces before God and did that. They remembered and they repented. This was quite a rebuke from Jesus. and They're saying, Jesus, we're sorry. And I would say at the Gateway Church, if we are not fired up, if we've cooled off even the slightest, if, we've, if we're cold and indifferent or backslidden, we need to get on our face and take this rebuke from Jesus. Take these words to remember, to repent, to heart, and to say, I want to remember. I want to repent. I remember when I first met Jessica, and uh, boy, those are fun days. I was young, 16 years old, met on a missions trip, and uh, she played the piano. She's a concert pianist. This is a funny story. She, uh, we would we traveled around the state of Michigan before we went. We met on a missions trip, but we we traveled in the choir before uh, this. And uh, she would play the piano, and her friend would sit there with her. And I was so dumb. I thought there were two people playing the piano. But I realized later, <laughs> that's how good she was. Someone was churning the pages for her. I didn't realize that. But um, I get on the trip, and I remember uh, the Lord just speaking to my heart. It's too long of a story to share. But I remember being affectionate towards Jessica. The second part of the, the trip, the whole second half, I made sure on our long bus rides to the villages that I was within earshot or within arm's length of Jessica I needed a protector, you know, I mean, and I started to sit next to her. And then they said, all right, all the girls on one side of the bus, all the guys on the other, guess where we were? On the outside of the aisle so we could be next to each other, right? And it was great. It was fun. And then after that, when we were courting, when we were dating, I used to drive across the state, and she would drive across the state uh, two and a half hours from Kalamazoo to Troy, and it was like nothing. And we would stay up all night talking. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing, Jess. Now we get in bed, and it's like uh, we start talking, and I'm sleeping. It's like, <laughs> I've, have I lost my love for my wife? I, I hope not. But it's, you know, we used to dream together. And why would we do that? Why could we stay up all night and talk and, and all these things? Is because of our love for each other. And it was growing, and, and boy, it was exciting. It was motivated by love, not by duty. It was motivated by love, not by duty. No one said, you've got to spend time with Jessica. No. I made sure that I was spending time with her. You know what's interesting? Tonight, there's a, at our youth service tonight, uh, our worship band for our youth, it's the first time that they're going to play and, and minister tonight, and I got the privilege of leading that. It's really fun, and there's several of you that are going to be here for that, um, uh, students. These students, Brendan, they love it. I've not had to remind them one time. In fact, they've called me saying, hey, we're meeting, right? It's been great. They come. They're on time. It's not a duty. They're enjoying the process of worshiping together and growing in that, and it's exciting. And tonight we're going to be a, a, have a, a, a chance to do that. Just recently I picked up the guitar again and started playing again, 
And it's like, man, I love this. Why did I ever stop playing the guitar? And, uh, and it's not out of duty now that I pick up the guitar. It's because I love it. We need to remember and to repent. You need to remember and to repent. I need to remember and to repent. And then there's one final thing in these verses. Let's look at verse 7. Revelation 2, verse 7. There's a promise or a commitment. It says this, he who has ear, and most of the original audience would have heard this, right? It, it would have been writ, uh, read aloud. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, when I first read that, I said, okay, that's neat. But as I studied what that meant, and I saw the correlation between Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, talking about the tree of life there in Genesis, and then you fast forward to the very last chapter in the Bible, the very last words in uh, Revelation twenty-two nineteen, again talking about the tree of life from Genesis to Revelation and what that means, the gravity of that. What it's talking about is that if you repent and remember, you will have eternal life. You'll be able to eat from the tree of life, paradise, forever, forever. The weight of that is so important. And I can't encourage us enough to let the weight of that sit on our hearts this morning. This morning, there's some takeaways from these red letters for us. There are many things about the church in Ephesus that are similar to our city, to our culture, even as I look at our activity as a body of believers. We are doing some good things. Many of you are participating and are, are, uh, are, are part of something, and I believe that it's very good. But I believe at the same time, as we look inside, and these, even as I look inside, I've got to be honest. There are times I do things that are good without the motivation of the greatest thing, love. And my guess is that I'm not alone. These red letters are for us. It says, but love. I was thinking the song, what about love, right? What about love in our activity? I don't know the rest of the song. That's the only part I know. But I was thinking if God, if his son wrote a letter to the Gateway Church, would he warn us this morning that our candle, our lampstand, is at risk of being extinguished? Would he encourage us to go from a situation where we're doing the right things, we're doing the duty, the deeds, we have our doctrine in order, we're even willing to argue about it, maybe. 
But we've lost the passion, the excitement behind it. And then for each of us personally, my heart is, for me, I want to come back to the place. I want to remember. And if that means I need to remember, if I need to repent, so be it. But I want my devotion, my love for others, my love for God to be intimate. Would I die for my faith? Would I serve? Would I testify? It comes out of remembering what it was like at the beginning and sharing that. It's not about the rules or the obedience or being biblically literate. It's all about love. And this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to challenge many, many of us in this idea that we need to return to our first love. You might be just like the Ephesians. I might just be like that. Where I've grown up in the church, I've seen some neat things. I'm serving, I'm doing the work. But have I lost some of the spice, some of the goodness, some of the, the love that motivates it? Could we take a good, hard look inside this morning and ask God, say, God, help me to love again, to love you? like I did at the beginning. And that's the word of the Lord today for the Ephesians church, but for the Gateway church as well, for each of us. And I know you could sit here and you could say, hey, well, I'm doing all these things. I think I'm loving, but has it become a burden? Has it become a chore, the things that you're doing? If it is, could we be honest this morning and say, you know, God, restore that joy. You know that song that says, restore the joy of my salvation, renew a right spirit in me? It's all about going from a place where, okay, I'm doing the right stuff, but bring me back to the place where I first believed. Father, this morning, I pray pray for myself. I pray for my family. I pray for my church, my friends here. God, that I know the majority here love you. I know that many of them are doing the right things. But Lord, could we take a hard look inside and say, God, what's motivating me to come to church? What's motivating me to serve? What's motivating me to, to uh, to discuss scripture with others? Is it all about the works and being obedient? Or is there a love that motivates that? Lord, help us to be honest in these moments. And we'll give you the praise. We'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name. Now, with everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around this morning. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, if you were to die today and uh, end up in eternity, would you live forever with Jesus in heaven? 
Or would you be separated from Jesus for an eternity in hell? This morning, I want to give you an opportunity to know for certain, to have great assurance. We talked about it on Easter Sunday, but we talk about it every week. Do you know Jesus? If you're here this morning, you say, yep, without a shadow of a doubt, I know Jesus. Would you just slip up your hand right quick? Just slip it up saying, yeah, I know Jesus. I know that if I were to die today, that I would go to heaven. Yeah, put your hands down. There were some here that weren't able to raise their hand or didn't for some reason. I want to speak to those. Or maybe you raised your hand just out of obligation because your friend or your neighbor or your family member was right there. If you don't know Jesus, the Bible says that you will spend an eternity away from Him. But it says in 1 Peter that He desires no one, no one to perish, but that everyone would find everlasting life. If you're here this morning and if you need Jesus, would you just slip up your hand and say, oh, I want to know Jesus as my personal Savior. Would you just raise your hand right where you are? Anyone at all? No hands this morning. That's okay. Can I have your eyes on me for a moment? This morning, I've been praying for you. I've been asking God that His Word would be illuminated in your spirit. When you read these words or listen to these words in Revelation, the first red letters, does it challenge you to consider where you are in your walk with the Lord? Have you drifted to a place of I'm doing the right things, but there's not a whole lot of heart behind it? If so, if you've lost your first love, the encouragement is simple. To repent, ask for forgiveness, and then to remember. The first is to repent. And I believe that there are times in our lives that we need to just be honest with God, even as believers, where we can say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. You say, well, I haven't lost my salvation. If God was to come back, I'd be fine. I understand that. But it's very possible that you need to say, I'm sorry. And this morning, we're going to give you a chance to do that. The other thing he says to do is to remember. And as I was thinking about this, how do you remember? How do you get up from this spot and head to a spot where there's deep passion and deep love again? How do you remember? Well, you remember. I don't know. Maybe you find yourself in worship, getting lost in worship again. Or maybe you open up Scripture and let God's Word just minister again. I think the key for me is the again. And I believe many of us need to remember again to worship be at God's footstool. 
we're going to give you that opportunity this morning too. If you're interested in remembering or repenting this morning, I'm going to ask that you would stand where you are and find a spot up in the front here. And just find a spot to kneel. You say, well, do I have to move? Well, no, you don't have to move. But that's the whole point this morning, is moving from one chair to the next. And so I'm going to encourage you, just wherever you are, if you're interested in repenting or remembering to reestablish that love for the Lord, I'm going to ask that you would join me right here at the altar. We're going to spend some time, and Brennan and Matt, you guys can lead. And we're not going to close the service quite yet. I'm going to ask that no one leaves. And so we're going to give you opportunity. I want you to respond. I want you to respond. I want you to be put yourself in the shoes of that early church. Just imagine what their response would have been. I believe they would have found themselves on their face, repenting and remembering, just as Jesus encouraged them. So let's do that together this morning. Would you join me in the next few moments? And then we'll close here. We, I, I understand our time, but could we spend some time to remember and to repent before the Lord together as a body of believers? Why don't you join me? And you could stand if you want, wherever you are, um, whatever the Lord leads you to do in these next few moments.
leave here a little different today, loving Jesus a little more than we did when we came in. There'd be a challenge to share the good news this week. Again, I want to encourage you to come back on Wednesday night as we look a little deeper into some of these things. And uh, just let it be a blessing to you, like it describes and it will be. I want to pray a prayer of benediction. And if you want to stay a little longer and worship and pray, feel free to do so. Brendan and Matt uh, will stay as long as, as you do. And uh, otherwise, go in the grace of God. Father, I pray for this challenge this morning from your word to sink deep into our hearts that we would really address our love for you and take an honest look and say, God, uh, help us. Lord, I pray, God, for those that have found themselves drifting for one reason or another. Lord, I pray that we would slide back into your grace and your love. And Lord, I pray, like I often pray, that you would go before us, behind us, and all around us. And help us, Lord, to live for you. We pray this in your wonderful and awesome name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. Let this be a place of worship and remembering and repentance. And if you want to talk out in the hall, no worries. But God bless you as you go.